Today's episode is brought to you by the new book, Cannabis Lullaby, a painsomniac's quest for a good night's sleep. It's written by Painopolis co-host and award-winning journalist David Sharp. Cannabis Lullaby is now available in print, ebook, and audiobook. Get your copy today at painopolis.com. Hello and welcome to Painopolis. I'm David Sharp. Today, an ambush in suburbia, eight shots, and a survivor who refused to be a victim. On a bitter January morning in 2003, a 19-year-old man named Billy Glenn Jackson drove a stolen rental car along a quiet residential street near Memphis, Tennessee. It was the sort of suburban neighborhood that normally seems shielded from the crackle of gunfire plaguing other parts of the Memphis area. But Jackson had brought along a target pistol. And on this day, gun violence would be making a house call. Jackson parked at the home of his intended victim, a 44-year-old accountant named Jeff Droke. Raised in Memphis, Droke moonlighted as a professional wrestler. Even in his middle years, Droke, known to local wrestling fans as The Hammer, still had the muscle-popping superhero build of an athlete 20 years younger. Jackson got out of his car, walked up to Droke's house, and banged on the front door. Then he banged even louder. Glancing out a window, Droke saw a stranger oddly decked out in a white bubble coat and white pants. Droke felt something wasn't quite right and slipped out the back door to investigate. Moments later, he encountered the young man who'd come there to kill him. And on that January morning, Jackson was one trigger squeeze away from completing that task. He pointed a pistol at Droke and shot him eight times in the worst possible places. His head, neck, and chest. What happened next was a tussle so bloody and surreal that it could have been the opening scene of a Quentin Tarantino movie. You'll hear all about it in a bit, and I hope you're sitting down when you do. It's that intense. For now, let's just say that the outcome didn't go quite the way Jackson had intended. The confrontation ended with the panicked gunman, his white coat stained with Droke's blood, scrambling into the stolen car and speeding away. He didn't stay on the run for long, though. The police soon arrested Jackson and another man named Jason Jordan for the shooting. Droke had never heard of Billy Jackson before, but he was all too familiar with the name Jordan. Years earlier, Droke had testified against Jordan's then-wife, a former employee of Droke's, in a child custody case. After that, Droke found himself on the receiving end of some serious animosity that would eventually turn lethal. Following his arrest, Jackson told police that Jason Jordan had hired him to kill Droke in retribution for Droke's testimony in that child custody case. No charges were ever filed against Jordan's wife in this matter. Unfortunately, the danger didn't end for Droke after his assailant fled the scene. Bleeding massively, Droke managed, just barely, to stay alive long enough to get to an emergency room. He survived that ordeal, too but he wouldn't escape chronic pain and other gunshot-related ailments in the years to come. In that regard, he's got a lot of company. Each year, nearly 90,000 Americans become the victims of gun crime. Thanks to advances in emergency medicine, more than four out of five of them pull through. That's the good news, sort of. The bad news is the advances in emergency medicine haven't been matched by similar improvements in the treatment of chronic pain. As a result, More people than ever are now surviving gunshot wounds 
but more people than ever are also struggling with chronic pain caused by those wounds. For most Americans, gun violence amounts to little more than a quick item on the local news. But the victims of that violence don't have the option of changing the channel. In many cases, their lives are forever marked by long-standing pain, other gunshot-related health complications, and staggering medical bills. Today, we'll explore that private struggle by delving more deeply into the story you've already heard a snippet of, that of the account wrestler who walked out of his house and into the line of fire. Joining us is the man at the center of the story, Jeff Droke. Today, Droke talks about how he got the upper hand on a pistol-wielding attacker, how he survived those first crucial hours after getting hit by eight bullets, how close he came to dying, short answer, very close, and how he dealt with the pain. But first, a quick disclaimer. This podcast is for general information purposes only. It's not to be used as a substitute for qualified medical advice. Go to painopolis.com to read our disclaimer in its entirety, along with our terms of use and other important information. Now, let's dive into today's show. Jeff, take me back to the day when you were shot. It started one morning with a stranger showing up at your house, didn't it? It was about 8 o'clock in the morning, January the 20th, 2003. It was about 20 degrees outside. And there was someone banging on our front door, which is pretty unusual. My 11-year-old daughter was sick that day, but she normally would have been We had been down at the bus stop. They planned this to catch her at home because they wanted her to witness them trying to to murder me. So I looked out the upstairs bedroom window, and uh, I looked down on the porch and saw a young man that was uh, very out of place. The kid was... The rapper Eminem was in his heyday then, and he looked very much like Eminem. And he was dressed in a white bubble coat and white pants, and he just did not fit in with the young men that were normally in our neighborhood. He just looked a little a little troublesome, I guess. And then what happened? I saw him stay on there and, and pound on the door, and we had been enrolled in some problems with a uh, former employee of mine and her husband. So I had my antenna up, so to say. So you were testifying in a child custody case, and some parties within that case were trying to intimidate you. Is that the picture? Right. Actually, what had happened is by then the case had settled. When we were trying to get the Shelby County Attorney General's office to actually, what I looked at is doing their job and to do something to protect me, because to me, I guess I was trying to do my civic duty and the Attorney General's office, it was just basically in Shelby County, it was okay to intimidate witnesses. And so what they said to do was to file a civil suit. And that's what I did. I filed a civil suit against this young lady. And uh, it had drug on for, I'm going to say, about four years. And we were about a week away from getting a default judgment that I had no intention of collecting. 
It was just a symbolic victory. So it was just financially, it was for nothing. It was just basically just the symbolism of it. They had pulled a few stunts, and I was kind of used to a little aggravation from them. So I called my police detective friend, and I put a 9 millimeter pistol in my coat pocket. I did not, hindsight's twenty twenty. I did not put one in the chamber. Okay. Which should have, didn't, but should have. And I was calling my buddy on the phone, and as I was walking through the the neighbor that was adjacent to us on the left, as I was going through their yard, this kid, his name was Billy Glenn Jackson. He was 19. He popped out of the car, and uh, he had a Browning Challenger twenty two long rifle with an 8-inch barrel. And he was, unlike what I see dealing with gun crime in Memphis now, he was a very good shot. And uh, he started firing at me. How close was he to you? Oh, he was about, I would say initially about 20 foot away. And of course, he had a target pistol. That helped. And uh, he actually was not a city kid. He had grown up in rural Middle Tennessee. And he began firing away at me. The first one hit in my left trapezius muscle. And I just remember the absolute sting If you've never been shot before, I just assumed that one was going to kill me right off the bat. You know, it hurt. I mean, it stung. It hurt. It passed through. It blew through the back of the muscle and put a fairly big hole in there. And then he kept shooting. He shot me twice in the chest. And then he shot me three times in the neck one of which was a little bit of a half-and-half, I guess, a graze, and it split the left side of my neck open, and I just began to just lose a lot of blood instantaneously. I could feel that. I could tell that something, not knowing anatomy, I figured that, well, this is it. That's the end of the game. He came up and got closer to me, and... At this point, he said, now you're going to die, MFR, and he turned the gun sideways, which is, you know, your typical Memphis thug, idiot way of using a gun. A gangbanger wannabe. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. He had pled guilty to an assault. He had been sentenced to 1129 in local confinement. I mean, he was a bad guy. He was... From the last I've kept up with him, he still is. What do you mean by 1129? What is that? 11 months and 29 days. Oh, okay. Got it. Got it. And it was a quick 1129, I guess. since less than a month later he was out. But when he turned the gun sideways, something about his demeanor, his look, the fact that I had a child inside, coupled with when he said, I'm going to kill you, MFR. I muttered something, I doubt if it was too cool or too memorable, but I said something like, not today, bitch, or I don't know if I can cuss on this or not. No, no, you can say whatever you want. Okay, then I'll, then I, I am very, I'm very salty then. Let it fly, go for it. After he said, I'm going to kill you, motherfucker, I just said something like, I don't think so, bitch. 
I was going down a little bit of a hill in our neighbor's yard, and I had been in professional wrestling for five years. So I was about 5'11", 240, and was pretty pretty strong and pretty built up. So when you say you were in professional wrestling, you mean as a wrestler? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So you were pretty sturdy physically on the day that this happened? Yes, sir. Okay, got it. Yes, sir. And all things taken together, I was the wrong person for him to come after that day because I was just very, very protective of my daughter and very irritated at him. So I went down the little slope at our neighbor's house and I grabbed him with my right hand around his neck and I tried to do what, you know, in wrestling, you do have to do a lot of different forms of training for it. And we did learn some martial arts. I did a little bit of an up block with my left arm. And as I'm trying to block his right arm up, he fired one that went in just above my jawline. Hmm. And it kind of started a path of tumbling and it ended up up in my skull And then a second one that we didn't really know this had happened until the sheriff's department recovered the evidence and went through it. But it hit my baseball cap. It went in and with a small hole and left in a large hole where it had hit the left side of my head and spun and bounced. So after that, I had his right arm up in the air and he emptied the rest of his clip out just basically shot it up in the air. Once he had emptied his clip out, he was an entirely different person. I rammed him on down into the back of his car. His car was parked with the driver's door parallel to the neighbor's curb, and it was open. I rammed him down onto his trunk, and if I'd known enough about anatomy and known that because I was holding the wound in the left side of my neck with my left hand, if I'd known that that was just a wound and not my artery bleeding out, I would have used both hands and broke his neck. But I was holding that wound closed with my left hand, and then I had my right hand, and I was trying to beat his head against his trunk and basically, you know, split his skull open. Sure. Uh, at that point, I lost all mercy for him. Well, he had it coming. The way I look at it, in an Old Testament way, he did have it coming. And so I popped him for a while, and then I realized I'm bleeding a lot. I'm losing a lot of blood. And I don't know, obviously not being a doctor, how much longer I've got. So I thought, I'm just going to pull my gun out and just end this right now. And because I didn't want him to get in the house. Right. So if that meant blowing a hole in his head, then so be it. But he was not going to get in the house because, again, I didn't know that I would be there another minute. Sure. So I got the gun back and he saw the gun come out of my coat pocket and he put his hands up and it... You know, I was getting weaker, and I pulled the slide back on the gun, 
And I was having to struggle with it because I was covered in blood. Everything was covered in blood on me. And I still vividly remember this. He's like pleading, don't kill me, don't kill me, which I don't think I could really grant that request. Well, and you didn't know what else he might have on him. He might have had another pistol on him or something like that. We had had so many problems out of these people. I didn't know what to expect from one day to the next. Sure. And uh, so he jumped into the car, and I had a a Breda M9 or 92FS as a civilian. And I had some bullets. I was loaded with bullets called hydroshocks, which are supposed to basically have a lot of stopping power. They're like a, uh, I guess you'd call them a hollow point on steroids. So uh, I aimed at the back window right at his head, and I pulled the trigger, and it blew the back window out of the car. The sheriff's department recovered one bullet inside the car laying on the floorboard, and I'm guessing that was it. It lost all its energy before it hit his head. He needs to really consider himself a very blessed individual. The car took off at that point, and adrenaline, basically not knowing if I was just going to fall over dead and him turn around and come back, but I fired the other 14 at the car. And I shot at the tires, shot trying to hit the brake lines. Somehow, I guess I had the Hollywood misconception that if you hit a car in a gas tank, it blows up, which doesn't. I was really hoping, please blow up car. Right, right. But it didn't. And he sped around the corner and took off to, I guess, count his blessings. I walked up to my neighbor's She had heard 30 shots out in her front yard, so obviously she knew something had happened bad. And I just walked up and knocked on her door and just told her, Tony, I need you to call 911. I I looked pretty rough. I had been shot up pretty good. So she dialed 911, and we just—she was probably more of a panic than I was. I was just kind of— Memphis is a very violent city, and I guess you just always have in the back of your mind that something something horrible can happen, and it did. It's just kind of surprised me, but yet at the same time, didn't. How many times were you shot altogether? I was shot eight times. And how were you able physically to put up a fight after being shot that many times? Do you attribute that to your wrestling background and the strength you had built up from doing that? I'm sure that helped. I would just say the good Lord was looking out for me because, I mean, I had one bullet that my upper pectoral muscles were so thick that it actually lodged in it. Wow. But as far as just the ability to get myself that worked up, I don't know what to attribute that to. I mean, I've just some, I don't know, special genetic trait or something. You know, it's just the way it worked out. Maybe it was Allison being in the house, but I had one of the bullets that went through my neck hit my left carotid artery, and the vascular surgeon at the trauma unit said that, and he was excited about this, but he was showing me all the little things in the CT scans and then drew diagrams saying a bullet, as it passes through, leaves a round hole. And you can see where your carotid artery was at is not around. I mean, you can see where 
this bullet where it punched a hole through the mass there next to my carotid artery was not round. So he said, this bullet had to have hit your carotid artery. Carotid arteries do not take impacts from bullets at all. They blow apart. They're very fragile. He said, I've seen what I would refer to as actual, what I would call a miracle. He said, yours is the fourth since I've been here. So somehow the bullet went by the carotid artery and it sort of nudged around it without actually doing any damage to the artery itself. No, no damage at all. Unbelievable. Wow. So. And just to go back to the guy who was shooting at you, he wasn't, now, he was a total stranger to you. You didn't know him before this day, right? No, sir. And he wasn't operating out of just pure animosity. Wasn't he hired? Wasn't he being paid to kill you? This is the testimony he gave. Jason Jordan hired him and another gentleman named and backed out at the last minute. The plan was for them to come to the door. And this was from testimonies given to the Shelby County Sheriff's Department, Detective Raymond Sides. They were supposed to come to the front door. Somehow they thought I would answer the door or Jackson one would shoot me in the knee, and then the other would go get Allison, and they were to cut my throat open and kill me in front of her. Oh, my God. And then leave, uh, and I believe this was a statement from and this is stupid, but, and leave a note that says, no one fucks with Jason Jordan. Oh, my God. That's not too incriminating. Yeah, that's not going to be used against you, but... He was supposed to pay them $1,000 a piece and never gave them anything. Talk about adding insult to injury. Not only are they trying to kill you, but they're only saying you're worth $1,000 each. I know. That really put me in my place, didn't it? Yeah. And, you know, I'm sure this guy had. He could have told him he was going to pay him $50,000 and had no intention of doing it. Are you curious about whether cannabis can ease your chronic pain and help you finally get a decent night's sleep? I sure was. Hi, this is David Sharp here to tell you about my new book, Cannabis Lullaby, a painsomniac's quest for a good night's sleep. Fifteen years ago, I was so beaten down by chronic pain and pain-related insomnia that I couldn't even think straight. So one night, at the tender age of 47, I ate my first brownie ever made with a special ingredient. No, not walnuts, weed. A little while later, my pain and stress melted away and I snoozed for nine and a half hours. Best of all, I woke up totally refreshed. Fast forward to today and cannabis is still helping me tremendously. But there's a lot more to using it than eating a brownie. For example, some types of pot make it harder to get to sleep and it can also trigger other unintended effects. Knowledge is key, which is why I wrote Cannabis Lullaby. In it, you'll learn the specifics of how I acquire and use cannabis to relieve my painsomnia. I also share crucial new findings from the work of cannabis scientists worldwide. In Cannabis Lullaby, you'll gain evidence-based insights about pot that haven't yet trickled down to many doctors. Now, it's always smart to check with your physician before making any new healthcare decisions, including whether to use cannabis. It's not right for everybody, medically or legally. But if it's an option you've been pondering, and if you've got chronic pain, you know you have, go to painopolis.com and buy Cannabis Lullaby today. 
It's available in print, ebook, and audiobook. That's Cannabis Lullaby. Get your copy at Painopolis.com. So after you were shot and the shooter took off, you went over to your neighbor's house, and that's where we left it. What happened at that point? Well, Tony calls Memphis. At that point, we had not been annexed in the city of Memphis, and she dials 911, and there was a Memphis City fire station that was just about a mile from our house. And so I fully expected the city and county to basically, if there was a situation such as mine that was a life or death emergency, would not be bound up by municipal jurisdictions. And after about five minutes, there was no ambulance. So she called them back, and she was very frantic. And she works in the medical field. And I remember she said, why is the ambulance not here? My neighbor's dying, which I probably didn't need to hear that. (laughs) Not exactly a pep talk? No. And they said, well, the city ambulances only cover the city. you got to wait for a county ambulance, and it's going to be there in 15 minutes. So I laid there. My neighbor that lived on our left, he was a physician, and his wife was a occupational therapy teacher at the University of Tennessee Medical School and did occupational therapy here in Memphis. And Megan came over, and she said, you need to lay down. We need to go see if the bullets pass through. I had a leather jacket on, which they took off. Then they started ripping off what I had on, my shirt and everything. And uh, this had probably reached the 10-minute mark. And I guess I'd been running sort of on adrenaline because it stung getting hit with the bullets. And I didn't really remember the one that smacked me in the head, those two. I didn't really get any sensation of them until about six months later basically during a dream, which sounds normal, I guess. but And by then, the pain really started coming on full steam. It just, she uh, had me lay down. You're laying down on her front yard, or where are you at? Right on her front yard. Okay. And then the pain was really starting to set in then. And it was really, I'd had so many gunshot wounds. It was sort of overpowering at that point. And I laid there. I kept I kept expecting to hear an ambulance or at least a police car and never did. And I'm laying there. I started going into shock and I'm losing any kind of feeling in my arms and my hands, my feet. And I thought, well, not really sure what's happening here. Then I started getting this real kind of cloudiness My eyes were getting kind of blurry where I couldn't really focus totally on what was in front of me looking up the sky because I was looking up at some tree limbs that were hanging over me. And then all of a sudden, I just got kind of a not really a I'm looking down at me below kind of outer body feeling, but just kind of a I didn't feel like I was just looking straight out of my head. I felt like I was maybe envisioning everything and maybe a 180-degree panorama. Wow. 
I felt like I was no longer just limited. I felt like I could, it's really hard to explain. I started noticing that I could see someone, a couple of gentlemen standing off to my left by our garage. And uh, I realized, hmm, one of those gentlemen looks a lot like my dad, who had been dead for 20 years. So I realized that this is pretty much about it for me. This is over with. And I spoke to both ladies about this and still do without trying to upset them. But they couldn't hear me. And Megan, who had worked at the trauma unit, thought that I actually might have been gone at the time. Uh, I think the term she used was coded out. Uh, So I just started praying as loud as I could pray. To me, I was screaming. But to them, I wasn't saying anything that, Jesus, you can't let me go. I've got an 11-year-old in the house. Jesus, you got to let me live. Please, I've got to live. And that went on for maybe 15 seconds. And then about five seconds after my prayer ended, all the pain came rushing right back. And I stood up. And I remember Megan saying, you need to lay back down. You stood up after being shot eight times and having an out-of-body, near-death experience. Yes, sir. That's amazing. And why did you stand up? Um, When you have an NDE and you don't really understand, I mean, you don't know to get up and walk over to my dad. I mean, there's no, I guess, uh, life after death handbook. So after going through that, and that kind of shook me up, I just felt I needed to stand up. Uh And when she said, don't stand up, we haven't accounted for all your bullets. And I said, I'm not going to lay back down again or I'll die. Of course, at that point, she did not know what I was talking about. Mm -hmm. So I was just determined to stand up. The ambulance and about 50 patrol cars showed up. I could hear the sirens coming from that point. And uh, I stood up. Well, they pulled the cart off the ambulance, and then I stepped up on it. So I never laid back down again until I got in the actual EMT unit to be taken to the trauma center. You had mentioned that the shooter had initially wanted to kill you in front of your daughter. Mm-hmm. And there was a bit of a change of plans in terms of the shooter's approach. But did your family witness any of this? Because if they did, it must have been terrifying. Well, she was in the house, and she heard it. And uh, the detective where I was going to his house, Mike came out, because after he had heard the shooting, and I said, go in there, tell Allison I'm okay, and if there's somebody that comes upstairs to where she's at, and you don't know them, kill them. And so I think having a cop there, I don't know, maybe she had a lot of confidence and I don't know, we all guess look at our dads as heroes or whatever and are indestructible. But even though I had an NDE and I had a lot of damage, and maybe this is just craziness, but I never felt in any real danger. I mean, I took care of the young man. I think that's why I really haven't had any issues with PTSD or anything is I think I called it. I wasn't exactly Pearl Harbor. I did, in this case, get some blows in myself, and I shot his car to pieces. Oh, you kicked his ass, it sounds like. Yeah, so, 
The sheriff's department tried to talk to me before they loaded me up to take me to the trauma unit. They asked who did this, and I told them I didn't recognize the shooter, but I know where it had to have came from. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Billy Jackson, he was going down the major thoroughfare up by our house and had a wreck. The shooter wrecked his car as he was fleeing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. The first thing he did was drive by a children's playground at a school that was nearby and threw the gun into the kid's play yard. Oh, my gosh. Award-winning people. Yeah. And uh, obviously, the back of his car was covered in blood, and he had a light silver Chevrolet Malibu. Him and Jordan had gone out a couple nights before and rented this car from an Enterprise rental car, car lot. And uh, they had a friend of his make a duplicate key, and when they turned the car back in, then they turned around and stole it back off the lot. So he was out in his stolen Enterprise rental car, and, of course, it's shot to pieces at Rex. The Memphis Police Department got their helicopter up, and they found the car pretty quick. They got Billy Glenn Jackson very quick. And they said that when they got him, that he had defecated on himself, had urinated on himself, and was just hyperventilating and walking around by the car just in circles, incoherent. Because he had always, and I looked his history up, he had always been this badass when he had a gun pulled on somebody. So he had always, you know, it's easy to be a badass when you have a gun pull on somebody. But once you shoot your clip out and you no longer have any bullets and you have a 240-pound professional wrestler that's really pretty damn mad trying to break your neck, then you kind of scale it back a little bit, I guess, in your badassery. So they picked him up pretty quick. They went to Jordan's house, and sadly, there's some laws here. I never quite followed everything, but apparently if you believe there's someone that's committed a capital offense, as in first-degree murder, and you believe the perpetrator is inside a dwelling, you do not have to have a warrant. You can just go in. And I don't know if they just didn't think I would make it alive to the trauma center, but they went in after him. After Jason Jordan. Yeah, they thought maybe Billy Jackson was there because that's the address I gave them. But they went into the house, and of course he wasn't there, but that would come back and bite me in the ass during a trial. Before we go into what happened with the justice system, just to make sure I'm clear, so they arrested Billy Jackson for shooting you? Mm-hmm. And did they eventually arrest Jason Jordan for offering to pay Billy Jackson to shoot you? Yes. Those are the two people who were arrested for this crime. Right. They charged Billy Glenn Jackson and Jason Kerry Jordan with a criminal attempt first-degree murder, which is a Class A felony in Tennessee. Well, when they caught up with Billy Jackson, they must have literally caught him red-handed because you were saying you were bleeding, you were fighting with him hand-to-hand. He was all dressed in white. Yeah. He must have been slathered with blood. That's, you know, when they first, the officers that found him were told, 
because I told them it was a Chevrolet Malibu, which I actually got the car right, but said it was a silver-colored car. And then they found that car that had wrecked. But when they saw the blood on the trunk and saw him covered in blood, the officers that apprehended him, they were curious as if there may have been another victim because they didn't quite understand how someone that had had multiple gunshot wounds had been able to cover him in their own blood and then beat him on the back of a trunk. That kind of confused them. That took a little clarification. But, you know, they took Jackson into custody there at the scene where that car wrecked, and then they transported him down to the county jail, and then he gave a statement against Jordan. Well, clearly he underestimated who he was going after. I mean, he must not have appreciated the fact that you had this wrestling background or that you might have a gun on you or that you would fight back. All right. I'm just plain mean. Yeah. So once you got to the hospital, what sort of medical procedures did you undergo while you were there? Well, I guess since this is painopolis, I can tell you the absolute worst pain that I've ever had in my life, uh, I don't think I'll ever have anything worse, was as they transport me down to the trauma unit. And Memphis has a great trauma unit, one of the best ones in the country. When they took me off the gurney that was from the ambulance and they hand-transported me over to the gurney there at the trauma unit, that was the absolute... Just places that weren't even affected by the gunshots hurt. Everything just hurt. I don't wish that on my worst enemies other than Jackson and Jordan, but it was pretty gut-wrenching. It really was bad. It sounds mind-blowing, yeah. It was awful. And the people we work with, with the county, and I work with gunshot victims of the county now, most of them come in unconscious, the ones that have been shot in the head or the ones that have taken a lot of damage. And when we've talked about that with some of the ones that have had a more severe damage, they don't remember because they weren't awake. But other than the NDE, I never lost consciousness. So uh, I told you, along with the wrestling, I was for years been in racing. And it was very similar to a pit stop like we'd have at Talladega. I had a couple of people going to my right arm, a couple of people going to my left, a couple of people to my right leg, a couple of people to my left. I was like a pit stop. I felt like a race car. And they were drawing blood. They were giving me injections. It was something I hope you never have to experience. Were you also in a lot of fear or was the pain just so overwhelming that that's really all that was being registered? You know, after going through an NDE, I wasn't really in any fear. I mean, I was, at that point, I figured I already died once. I kind of knew how it worked out. It was no longer really a mystery to me. Once they were able to get the pain down, and it took maybe less than five minutes, everything was happening so quick. I don't know what they were injecting me with. But they got the pain down extremely quick. And from then on, I just tried to observe. Once they got me to where they thought I was stable, then they took me up to vascular surgery. 
because they saw where I had a couple of bullet wounds. The two that went through my neck, I had the one that was a graze that split that muscle open. One hit the carotid artery, and the tip of that bullet, you can feel it in the very back of my neck. Still? Yeah, it's like a freak show. It's still in there? Yes, sir. So they weren't able to get all the bullets out. How many are still in you? Three. Three bullets still in you? Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. And I was a little curious about that, but they uh, they said because when the bullets leave the barrel of the gun, they're so hot that any foreign matter, any infection, virus, whatever, would burn off. And they said that's one of the things that they learned during the Vietnam War, that in World War II, if you were shot, they would dig around in you and try to pull the bullet out and do more damage. But in this case, the damage, and this is what I've talked to my ENT and the people that I started dealing with right after the shooting, that... Yeah, we could go in there and pull the bullets out, like the first one to hit me above the jawline and spun around and got up in my skull. We could go get that one out, but we would do so much damage cutting your optical nerves and the nerves on the left side of your face that what would be the point? So the damage is done when the bullet goes through, and we would just be creating more damage if we went in there after it. So you have one bullet in your neck, you have one bullet in your jaw area, and where's the third one? It went up through my jaw, and it's right there a little bit above my eye and my skull. Really? And then the second one in my neck, for some strange reason, basically came apart. And they could not figure out how that happened, but it is just in pieces. It left, it looks like a boat wake, where it just hit and then came apart. And again, it would be impossible to get in. So while you were in the hospital, which injuries posed the most problems in terms of pain and complications? Was it the bullet wounds in your neck? Fortunately, the trauma unit was able to get the pain handled pretty quick. One of the things I had learned, and this may be one of the things taken in collective that maybe helped me survive this, I found this out during martial arts and also during wrestling, I'm pressure point dead. I don't know if you remember the old Star Trek with Leonard Nimoy of Spock when he would put his hands on people's trap muscle. He was hitting their pressure points, and you can cause people to drop. Everybody's got pressure points. You've got them in your wrist. You've got them in your bicep and your forearm and your chest. And with a normal person, you could, say, take their wrist and with your palm up, and you could press your thumb in there, and you could cause them a great deal of discomfort. But with me, I'm pressure point dead, so I wouldn't really feel anything. And this has always been the case. This wasn't just from the shooting. No, sir. You've just sort of genetically have this trait. Yes, sir. I just genetically had that. So did that work in your favor or work against you in terms of dealing with the pain? I believe it was in my favor. Because I think that had it not been for that, after the second, third, fourth shots, I may have been incapacitated. But that's why it wasn't rendering me just where I was just basically laying on the ground, unconscious. They told me in martial arts it was about one in a million that were pressure point dead. Is that right? I was just one of the fortunate ones, I suppose. So the next day, I really, I felt like having visitors and 
I had an IV drip of what I'm guessing was morphine, maybe something else. I don't know. They gave me Oxycontin, which worked for about three days. And uh, I looked terrible. The swelling when it started up was really sort of out of control. In your face? Yes, sir. The oxycodone, uh, I tried that in lieu of when Oxycontin quit, and it did just nothing. I would find out later in the next year or so that I was basically opioid-resistant. I went through years with really no no real problems. I mean, I had the bullets, yeah, which sucked. But it wasn't just a curl up in a ball and die pain. But then something happened toward the end of 2014, which would have been uh, 11 years after the shooting. Well, that's the show for today. But that's only half the story. In our next episode, Droke talks about the strange and unexpected way that severe pain came roaring back 11 years after the shooting, how he ultimately brought that pain under control, what happened to the culprits involved in the attack, and why he argues that some of the best help for gunshot survivors comes from other people who've been shot. For now, be sure to check out the show notes for this episode at painopolis.com, where you'll find more information about this topic. I've included a link to Jeff Droke's website for gunshot survivors. I've also included a link that'll take you to more than 10,000 medical journal articles on the treatment of gunshot wounds. In a sign of just how common gun violence has become, name any body part that's ever been hit by a bullet, and you're likely to find published studies exploring the best treatment options for it. And by any chance, have you ever suffered a gunshot wound? If so, feel free to go to the Painopolis Facebook page and share your story. I'd especially like to find out what helped you most during your recovery, and I'm sure other Painopolis listeners would like to know that too. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time, and we wish you well.